Would you please bow your heads? Dear Gracious Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the teaching of your word. We thank you for just the gift of your word that you would speak to us and you would give us instruction for our daily lives, how we might serve and honor you and exalt Christ in all things. We pray that you would be with us today and throughout our week as we seek to honor you, give us a zeal and a passion for the things of you, uh, for prayer, for, for daily Bible reading, that we might live out the one another's and, and exemplify Christ in all things. We pray as we come to this text today that you would, you would open our hearts and uh, our ears as we seek to understand uh, that your spirit would be upon us, that we would um, glean much from it, and we would live lives that are holy and pleasing to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And so we're going to take a little break from our study in the book of Acts, and we're going to jump over to the book of First Peter. Uh, we're going to start in chapter 1, so if you want to get your Bibles open, we can start working towards that. And my lesson today is only on verse 13, but we're going to cover verses 1 through 12 to set the tone and give the context for our message today. So we're going to be standing for a while, so you can stand up. Uh, we're going to do that today. We're going to stand up for the reading of God's Word. If you're getting your stuff set up, get your outline, get your Bible open. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. But now it's time to stretch. Everyone stretch. Everyone get ready um, so you don't pass out and fall on your friend. But don't buckle your knees. You know, Keep them flexed a little bit. So we'll get going. So 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the, sanctifying, and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the, testing, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with that, with that is, I'm sorry, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about this grace that was to be was, that is to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in these things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Now, I don't know why I did that, but I studied it in the NASB, and I just read it with my ESV, and that was actually kind of a challenge. 
So, we're going to walk through the context and set the tone uh, for our text today, because I think it's important and I think it gives light on the text that we're reading. If you see in verse 13, it says, therefore, and anytime you see a therefore as the starting point in your text, it really means in light of. So he's saying, in light of what I've said in verses 1 through 12, therefore, you know, believe this or do this in verse 13. So now, as we're, as we're a week, a full week removed from camp, this is the time where maybe some of those uh, spiritual disciplines start to slip a little. Maybe some of those uh, goals that you set from camp or, or things that you really wanted to do, uh, spiritual disciplines like praying or reading your Bible, maybe that starts to get a little more difficult. Maybe the comfortability of your bed makes that 6 a.m. wake-up time a little more difficult. Maybe your prayer time or time in the Word is becoming more irregular and few and far between. And no doubt, camp is an exciting and exhilarating time where all of your friends come together, or you're pressing into the things of the Lord, or maybe you're just there because you really enjoy the things that we do or, or the, the things we get to see. But at some point, the uniqueness and the excitement of the camp experience wears off, and you're just back to everyday life. Your little sibling is still at home, uh, you didn't plan on them still being at home, but they still know how to push your buttons. You still have household chores and responsibilities. Maybe you have a job that you need to go to and some difficult work situations there. Maybe you even have summer homework. That would be tough. So you're coming back, and maybe you, you, you come back into bad habits or, or, or those spiritual disciplines, like I said, start to fade away. Now in our text today, what we'll see is the Apostle Peter is encouraging his fellow Christians that are in a very difficult situation. He doesn't shy away from their difficulties or the difficulties that they're facing, but he is constantly pointing them to Christ to be prepared for his second coming and how to be prepared for his second coming. And my encouragement to you this morning, facing minor trials or or, uh, discomforts in your life, is to press on. If you've made spiritual disciplines, if you've set goals, continue on in those things. Those are good things. Know that you're honoring the Lord in that. Not in a self-righteous way, but in a way that honors your Savior, Christ. If you're not a believer here this morning, I urge you to carefully examine your life, because the Apostle Peter's exhortations in verse 13 are for believers. We see three imperatives. That means commands. He's telling us to do something, that we need to do something. He says we need to prepare our minds for action. We need to keep sober in spirit, and we need to fix our hope on Christ. You can't do that if you don't love and honor Christ and seek to obey him. So if you're an unbeliever here this morning, and you do not delight in Christ, and you have not bent the knee to him, then you should be carefully thinking about these things. Because again, he's pointing us to what will be revealed when Christ returns. And if you're a believer, you long for that day. You delight to see your Savior, to be in his presence for all of eternity. And if you're an unbeliever here, I'm not trying to scare you, but this should be something that incites fear in you, that that Jesus is coming back, he's going to judge the world. Each man, woman, and child will be held accountable for their own deeds, and you will either be found in Christ or out of Christ. You'll either be covered with his blood, his perfect righteousness, or you will give an account for every sin in your life. And... We know from Scripture that there is no one who is righteous, no, not one, according to their own works. We have to fully trust in Christ. So if you're sitting here 
an unbeliever, which I'm not naive, there are unbelievers here in this youth group, uh, many, many unbelievers, and I just pray that you would deeply consider these things, that you would not tone it out, that you tune it out, that you would not uh, just sit by, but you would think deeply about these things. And so that leads me to my thesis statement, which what we'll see today is that the believer is to live life completely and totally in light of the imminent return of Christ and is therefore called to live carefully and soberly in accordance with the word of God and the principles found in it. The believer is to live life completely and totally in light of the imminent return of Christ and is therefore called to live carefully and soberly in accordance with the word of God and the principles therein. Quite simply, stay awake. Christ is coming back. I don't know who this uh, quote is attributed to, but one time a, 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 a theologian or a pastor, I, I'm, I'm butchering it because I don't know who it was, he was asked if he could explain his eschatology, which eschatology is just the study of the last things. So the book of Revelation, it kind of details what happens when Christ returns, what happens in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's the study of the last things. And someone asked him, if you could explain your eschatology in one, one, one phrase, what would it be? He said, Jesus is coming back. And he's angry, and that is true. We we are we are uh, we have failed as a, as as human as a human race. We have not held up to God's holy standard, and God has come to judge the world with His perfect righteousness and His moral standard. And again, you will either be covered and found in Christ, or you will give an account for that. So we really need to think soberly and carefully about these things. So we're going to work our way down through the first twelve verses, and then we're going to start in uh, verse thirteen. But in verse 1, we see he's talking to exiles or, or aliens, uh, the uh, NASB says. And they're scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We don't know if these are Jews or, or Gentiles or maybe a combination. The Apostle Peter only gives one trait or one defining characteristic of these people. He calls them uh, chosen ones. In the ESV it says they are elect uh, so he's talking to believers. That's the only thing we know. He's trying to comfort believers in their state of exile. They've been, they've been cast out of their native land, and they are wandering in, in various regions. And so, uh, as you can imagine, that would be very difficult. Uh, in verse 2, he really, he really brings this Trinitarian greeting. He's talking about all, all three persons of the Trinity, the, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He says, You've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctifying work of the Spirit for the obedience of Jesus Christ in the sprinkling with his blood. So he really takes great care to outline the entire Godhead, which is, which is a very uh, sweet thing that we know the God we serve exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and so he, he, does, he does, takes great care to outline that for us. Um, and then he pronounces uh, a benediction, which is just a blessing, on them. He, he uh, prays that grace and peace would be theirs to the fullest measure, or the ESV says that it'd be multiplied to you, the idea that you would, you would come to know and understand the grace and peace of God, and it would continually be multiplying, and you would be continually caught up in God's grace and his peace. And then Peter breaks out into praise, speaking about the Trinity, speaking about this grace and peace. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every blessing. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
He builds them up with the truth of the gospel, outlining their hope of salvation and the security of it. He uses this truth to comfort them and encourage them in their time of exile, exile down in verse 4 and 5. He says, you've been, um, you've been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And that's a great comfort that if you are in Christ, you have been sealed with his blood. There, there are people who, who claim to, to love the Lord, and there are people who probably do love the Lord, who believe that you can lose your salvation, that in one sense it, it's, it, it's on your own works, that, that you need to, again, be not only that your works are pleasing to God, but they are necessary for your salvation, that if you fall away into sin and in a pattern of sin, then you can lose your salvation. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not teach that. We see... In John 10, 26 through 30, Jesus says himself, But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow after me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is a promise you can take to the bank. If you are in Christ, if you have put your faith and trust in Christ and you are headed for glory and you are pursuing righteousness, you will get there. You will see Christ. You will delight in him. No matter how bumpy the road is, no, how many, no, ma no matter how many valleys you fall into, no matter how much sin you commit, you will be with Christ. And he promises that he, will com he who, com who started a good work in you, he will bring it to completion or perfection. In Romans 11, it says, uh, for the gifts of God and the callings of God are irrevocable. It's not something that can be, can be taken away. And, and you, by your own, your own humanity, can't overrule God's judgment. It's, it's God's judgment on you in the one sense, a good judgment. He has said, you are my child. I have saved you. You are mine forever. And you can't just say, well, you know, I don't really want to do that anymore. That's, <laughs> that's not how it works. And so, Again, this should bring us great comfort. If you are washed and sprinkled in the blood of Christ, you are his. Christ paid your debt with his blood, and he will not let you go. So in verse 6, we see that they have been distressed by various trials. If you look back down your text, and it says that these trials are meant to be the testing or the proof of your faith. And so let's unpack that a little bit. So the it says, uh, it says it's to be the, out, the outcome of trials is always to be praise, honor, and glory. If we read down the text, I'm sorry, I keep reading the ESV, and that's really messing me up. <laughs> um, so it says, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's saying these various trials, trials are be, to be the proof of your faith, that they are to test you. Again, in different texts in Scripture, it talks about that trials and suffering are to bring about endurance in the faith. And this endurance and the strengthening of your faith is to harden and strengthen like precious metals, even more precious than gold, that they would withstand the testing of fire. And then at the end, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, when he comes back, he would say, well done, good and faithful servant, and that your works and that the testing of your faith would, be a res would result in 
praise, glory, and honor of Christ. And so that when you experience trials in your life, and again, first world trials, Rob and the missions team are in, headed to Papua New Guinea right now, and they're going to see some real trials. These people that they're, they're, they're with are, are very impoverished, and probably some of them are illiterate, I would imagine, and they have real struggles. They, they, they can't... Um, they, can't, they don't live like us. They don't have the ability to. We are very blessed and very comfortable to live as we do. But nonetheless, we do face minor trials and minor afflictions, if you'd like to call them that. And if you don't have a proper perspective of what trials are or what suffering is, then you will miss opportunities to glorify God through that, to ascribe Him glory, honor, and praise. If you're sitting in a traffic jam, just for an example... And you're just not, you're not properly thinking about how you might glorify the Lord in it as that being a minor affliction. I'm not saying that you go to your friends and say, oh my goodness, I was stuck in a traffic jam and I'm just so oppressed by these other people in traffic. No, it's not, it's not like something that you're just, you're, you're, oh, I need to tell everybody about how, you know, this, this crazy affliction that I've had. No, but internally you would be able to say, Lord, I pray that you would use this for your glory and that this would test my faith and grow my patience and my, my endurance in the faith, that I would think on things that are right and good and honorable, and I would not be led into frustration. That's an example of using that properly, properly using minor affliction and probably annoyances or, or discomforts in life to glorify the Lord. Because if you're not thinking that way, then you might very easily fall into frustration or grumbling, or maybe you're you know, laying on the horn because you aren't from around here, because Tennesseans are are slow drivers, uh, and they don't use their blinker ever. So when you get your driver's license, use your blinkers, because these people around here do not use their blinkers, and I'm a Midwesterner, and that really bothers me. Um, so we drop down to verse 7. It says, Peter used the, uses the picture of precious metals uh, being tested by fire, uh, which again, th- this idea, of the testing of your faith, the, test, the proof of your works in one sense, this should be a very uh, fresh memory uh, probably not so fresh because um, it was a long time ago in First Corinthians, I think chapter 3 when Chris covered it, and that seems like eons ago because I think we've been in chapter 8 for uh, two years now, uh, which is great, great stuff. Um, but in chapter 3, he talked about the proof of your faith, that at the end, at the judgment of believers, that you would come and, and your works would not be like wood, hay, and stubble. What happens when wood, hay, and stubble get in, you know, fire comes upon them. They burn up. They, they burn up. But he was saying in that text in 1 Corinthians, 3, 1 Corinthians 3 that your works would be like precious metals that would be purified through the testing of fire and you would come and lay your, your good works in one sense at the feet of Christ and say, I, this, is, this is not I didn't do this for my own self-righteousness. I didn't do this to earn my salvation but I did this because I love you and I want to honor you in all things. And, and, and Chris had this really vivid description of, you know, if it were a believer who kind of came in with the smoke billowing off him, like he just barely made it. He said, don't be, don't be like that believer. If you're in Christ, if you love him, it will manifest itself in good works. And you have to pray that the, the Spirit would enable you to do those things, and you have to pray that you would be diligent to read your Bible and have a desire to do good works. But there will be good works nonetheless manifested in your life. So that is an incredible comfort to the believer. And then verse 8. Uh, if you drop your eyes down to verse 8, 
he really unpacks the love and affection the believer should have for Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. And then verse 9, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Salvation of your souls. And so, again, we're talking about our works and, and what we do for Christ and if it will last or if it will not, if it's truly a good work or if it truly isn't. And that is all motivated by an affection, a love for Christ. You're not, you, don't, you shouldn't obey your parents just because, you know, I just have to obey my parents. Well, yes, you should. But you should love them and delight to honor them to say, you know what? They, they want, my, they want my, that my good. They, they want my good to come out of this situation. They, they, they want what's best for me, and I want to delight and honor them. You know, a thousand times, a million times more so with God the Father, that he truly is a perfect father in every way. And we should recognize him for who he is, his holy character, his goodness, his graciousness, and say, I, I, I delight to do these things. And, and, and particularly with Christ, man, Christ has died for me. He, he, he was humbled to the point of coming into the world. He emptied himself of his glory and he took on the form of a servant, that he would come in the world and be scrutinized and, and, and mocked and scorned and beaten, and then would take the full wrath of God, the penalty that I deserved, and he would bear that on the cross. And then he rose in victory, and he did that for me. And that's not, and that's not, a, that's not a selfish thought, you know, that, that Jesus, if you were in Christ, he did die for you, and that should be very personal to you. It's not that, oh, well, Jesus died for me and nobody else. Well, no, that's not true. He, he, he died to purchase his church, that the, the church would glorify him in all things, and you being a part of the church, have, Christ has died for you, and so you should have an affection for Christ. You, have, you should have an affection for God, that you don't obey him because it's just what you're, you were told to do, or that this is how I grew up. It's, no, you you love his word, you delight in it, and you seek to honor him in all things. So down, uh, we'll, we'll go down to verse 10. It says, therefore, uh, so therefore, in verse 13, is relating back to these previous verses. 10 through 12 is kind of its own subsection. Um, and so um, in this section, 10 through 12, we recognize Again, the continuity from Old Testament to New Testament. We're going through a lot of stuff right now. Sorry, guys. I'm kind of giving you the survey. Um, but he's going from Old Testament to New Testament. He's explaining, he says, concerning this salvation. Back in verse 10, he says, As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And so he's talking about the, the writers of the Old Testament, the prophets that the Lord, uh, again, in his, in, in his um, perfectness, he's preserved his world, word throughout history past, present, and he will continue to preserve his word in the future. And so he's saying these, these prophets you know, might not have totally understood what they were writing, but it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves at the time when it was written, that they were serving us. Again, a lot of this is focused on the prophecies of the coming of Christ. And so when Jesus comes, he often comes to the Pharisees and says, how did you not figure this out? It was in the Old Testament. 
you have, you have the word. Your job is literally to study the word of God, and you missed the mark completely. And so he said, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And so we recognize, again, the continuity between Old Testament and New Testament. The the Expositor's Bible Commentary says, the unity of the Old Testament and New Testament writings centers in Christ and his salvation. This message of salvation has come to humanity through people under the power of the Holy Spirit who has come from heaven. And God is incredibly gracious over eternity past, present, and future to use broken, fallen men and women to accomplish his purposes, and particularly to, to use men that would, would, would write this. The Lord could have given us his, whole, his entire book, the entire canon, without using prophets and, and, and teachers, but he did in a very unique way. And that's a very beautiful thing, and it speaks to the Spirit's empowerment in the believer, and the Lord has graciously ordained that we would delight to bring him glory. It's not a mechanical thing that we, we mechanically serve God, but, but he has blessed us abundantly, and we will reciprocate that and as honor back to him. All right, so now on your outlines, if you look, the first point is prepare your mind for action. Prepare your mind for action. And so in the natural flow of our text tonight in verse 13, we're given three commands, like I said, and we are to conf- consider the first two commands, prepare your minds for action and keep sober in spirit. Those are to be prerequisites to the final command, to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Peter is saying, okay, this is how you do that. This is how you fix your hope on Christ. You prepare your minds for action and you keep sober in spirit. And so I want to look real quick and just think about who is writing this to us. Okay, so this is the Apostle Peter. This is the same Peter who denied Christ three times in his greatest hour of need. And not only denied Christ three times, but he, he nastily like, was uttering vulgarities just to disassociate himself with Christ. Christ is in earshot, as we know from the gospel accounts. And this young girl is saying, you, you're a follower of Jesus. You, you're with Jesus. I saw you with Jesus. And, and Peter, as it were, is like cussing and trying to, he's trying to like kind of fade in with the crowd to, to disassociate himself with Jesus because he feared for his life. And so, the, again, the failure of Peter, and then we look throughout the entire Gospels, and Peter, if there were, if there were like superlatives, Peter gets the superlative for, which is just an award, basically. it's just a, another word for an award, he gets the award for, you know, most foot-in-mouth situations, where he just gets himself in these like, Peter, you're not thinking. Like, you didn't think that one through. He just speaks before he thinks. And then you kind of just, you're, you're sitting there reading your Bible, and you're like, Peter, if you just waited a second, Jesus explained what's, you know, what, that, what he's talking about. And so, again, this is the same Peter, however, that Jesus looked at and said, upon this rock, upon the rock of the apostle Peter, I will build my church. The foundation was laid upon the apostles and prophets, and Peter was... He, he really was, the, in one sense, the head apostle in that time for the laying of the foundation of the church of Christ. And this ought to remind us that no matter how much we failed, 
God can still use us greatly to accomplish his purposes and his kingdom. And so the idea of preparing your minds for action, it actually translates in the Greek to gird up the loins of your mind. And then the mind can be translated as disposition as well. So you'd be known for a disposition of preparedness or readiness. And so this idea uh, brings me to our next sub-point. It, it says, put on spiritual defenses. Put on spiritual defenses. And so if you will, while you're writing that down, uh, imagine for a, for a second, think about a Roman soldier so of that time, of that day and age of Peter. So he's got an iron helmet with that you know, massive horse's mane, you know, that red horse's mane on top. He's got a breastplate, uh, and he probably has like the abs chiseled in you know, on, on his armor. It's, it's, you know, it's probably for the guy who was insecure, who, who didn't have abs, and he just you know, told the guy to put him in there. Um, and he had a large shield in hand and a sword on his side. As you can imagine, all of this armor would take a lot of time to put on. It would need to be carefully tied together, but it would also need to be tight as well as loose so the soldier could move freely on the battlefield. It would need to be functional and optimal for mobility. And I think this is the imagery the Apostle Peter is wanting us to keep in mind here. As he's saying, you need to be spiritually protected. You need to be putting on spiritual defenses against the enemy. That You need to prepare your minds for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. Put, make ready a defense. And what he's talking about is he starts off by saying in verse 12, in light of what we know about Scripture, how we have Scripture, he's saying we need to prepare our minds for action according to God's Word. And the text in verses 10 through 12 is talking about how we have come to receive God's Word. And Peter is saying, don't take the Word for granted. Gird up the loins of your mind according to the truth and principles found in Scripture. And how much more are we held responsible than these believers, these exiles? These exiles, they, they didn't have the accessibility of the Bible. They also were only working with probably just the Old Testament up to that point. We had the complete, full revelation as God's church. On my phone right here, I've probably got about you know, 50 solid translations. I also have my entire library and commentary from faithful pastors and teachers explaining what the text means. I also have thousands of sermons explaining each text of Scripture. Guys, we, are, we, are, we have been given much, and much will be required. So we need to be, we have no excuse to not understand what Scripture is saying. These people diligently sought and valued the Word of God, and we need to do so as well. We are called to carefully search the scriptures, being equipped with the armor of the word in order, that we, in order that we may live lives firmly planted in God's truth, able to recognize the schemes of the, and lies of the enemy. And in Ephesians 6, 13 through 17, Paul lays out the, the armor of God. He says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything, stand firm Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, 
which is the word of God. And again, we see in this text, he's talking about girding up the loins of your, he's talking about girding up your loins as in, you know, taking a spiritual defense. But there's another, there's another aspect that we can consider the idea of girding up the loins of your mind. Uh, John MacArthur noted this, that uh, in his commentary, he said, girding up the loins of your mind in that day was often associated with men who had cloaks or, or tunics, and girding up your loins could, could also mean that you would take like the hem of your robe and pick it up and maybe tuck it in somewhere so your feet aren't being uh, constricted in any way. And so we see this idea in Hebrews 12.1. It says, I'm sorry, this, this is the second sub-point. It's uh, put off worldly hindrances. I'm sorry, guys. Put off worldly hindrances. And so in Hebrews 12.1, it says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We reject the hindrances of the world, as many philosophies, and we focus completely on practicing and establishing holy habits that give honor and glory to Christ. And again, this is using wisdom. We talked a lot about this in our de- devotions from camp. If you weren't there, we talked about uh, the, we talked about the fir- we covered the first three uh, proverbs, talking about wisdom personified as a woman who's, who's shouting in the streets. She's there for everyone to see. And if you reject wisdom, it's not that you missed her, you just ignored her. That, again, your conscience plays into this as well. Chris was talking about it this morning. That your conscience is, is something the Lord has given you in order to know when to not, uh, I'm sorry, when to guard yourself from sin. That, that it would be going off as you're thinking about sinful things or, or as you're about to do sinful things. So we need to use wisdom in this. That you would, again, lay aside every encumbrance of sin which easily entangles us. Think about a runner. If he's running down a path and he sees a massive log on one fork of the road and the other fork of the road, and this, this fork connects. Let's just say the fork connects. There's one fork that has a massive down tree. There's another fork that's completely open. And he decides to just keep on plowing through and inevitably gets this log and says, oh my goodness, how did this get here? What am I doing? Again, that's not, he's not using wisdom. He's not um, recognizing and looking down the path to see that it's clear. And that's how it can be sometimes when we come into sin. We saw that we were maybe setting ourselves up for a bad situation. Ah, maybe I shouldn't go to this thing tonight. Maybe I shouldn't go to this party. And it's not necessarily wrong that you would go to a, you know, some type of party or gathering, but, but saying, you know, I might be tempted into sin, or there's some people there that I know that aren't really great influences, or um, any number of particular scenarios. Again, we need to be wisely considering how we might best lay aside sin in our lives, guarding ourselves in Christ according to the word. world uh, uh, word, I'm sorry. So in 1 John 5, we have it explained uh, what the love of God is. It says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. To have any sort of love for God at all will manifest itself in obedience and conformity to his word. So we need to gird up the loins of our mind. We need to gird up the loins of our mind. We need to be ready at all times to run freely towards Christ in the path of righteousness, laying aside every sin that so easily entangles us. And as believers, we take great comfort in the idea that, that we will keep his commandments. In John 14, 
Uh, 15, Jesus says himself, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not you might keep my commandments. That if you love Christ, again, you will do good works. You, you will seek to honor him in all things because you are his. And uh, in 2 Timothy 2, uh, verse 4, it says, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may be able to please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So we need to keep our eyes on the mission. We need to accomplish the task that has been given to us by our commanding officer. And you need to self-evaluate. Do I forsake the sin in my life? Do I flee temptation? Do, am I actively guarding and keeping myself from sin? We need to discipline our thoughts and discipline our actions. And so my next point is keep sober in spirit. I'm going to move on to the next points. Keep sober in spirit. And so this literally translates to the idea of not being drunk with wine or not being overcome with much wine or not having self-control. Being sober-minded is to be categorically defined as a person who is alert, on guard, and awake. Not meandering throughout life without purpose or a mission in mind. Living soberly with an overwhelming sense of urgency in life. Again, eagerly anticipating the return of Christ. Longing to see the one whom your soul loves. Jonathan Edwards, the great, uh, he was he's known as the last Puritan uh, in, in America, a uh, great theologian. He said, uh, his, historically, he was noted with saying, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. This idea that everything you would see would be through the lens of an eternal perspective, recognizing that Christ is coming back, and there is a judgment, and God is righteous, and he will judge the world, and that you would seek to delight in Christ, that you would not uh, waste time, that you would make the most of your time, that we would stamp eternity on our eyeballs. And so, next sub-point is watching and waiting personal sobriety. This is a call to personal sobriety in this text. The idea of keeping sober in spirit brings to mind Psalm 130. The psalmist writes, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, indeed, more than watchmen for the morning. And in this text in Psalm 130, he's describing this picture of a sentry guard posted up on a city wall, perhaps. In ancient cultures, the walls of the city were the most important defensive asset. A watchman would need to be vigilant, would need to be on guard, would need to be awake. And understandably, the most vulnerable time of the watch guard, the watchman's duty, would be during the wee hours of the morning between like 2 and 5 a.m. be completely dark, no visibility. And this is when ancient, ancient civilizations, notably would, when, when armies would come and invade and then when they'd attack, when the city was most vulnerable, vulnerable, when the armies mostly would be asleep. And so they'd set these watch guards out to keep watch throughout the night. And so, as you can imagine, the watch guard, it's probably a pretty stressful job. You know, you're really trying to stay awake. You're, you're looking at all points for the enemy invaders. And the watch guard would eagerly anticipate the rising of the sun, which would bring great clarity and visibility to everything. The landscape would be completely visible under the sun. And so the psalmist is telling us that our soul should anticipate and wait on the Lord more than a watchman anticipates and desires the sun to rise because the sun brings life in this scenario to the watchman 
it brings life that he would be eagerly anticipating it, that his shift would be over and the city would be kept. It would be not, it would be not laid to waste. And this idea of watchfulness translates into our daily lives, that we would be watchful against sin. And then positively, we would be watchful for the return of Christ, that we must stay alert, must look to the horizon to anticipate the rising of the sun and anticipate Christ's returning. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, it says, Do you not know that all who run, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not without is not beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be dis- disqualified. And again, this picture of a runner eagerly anticipating the finish line, awaiting the end, the prize, which is Christ. We're going to move on uh, to uh, the next point, uh, guarding and keeping corporate accountability. Guarding and keeping corporate accountability. So in order to remain sober and watchful, our consciences must be properly trained and tuned by the, pre- tuned by the preaching of God's word. Spiritual discipline in, the, in our lives, in the lives we live, must be examined and encouraged by believers around us. If you're living in, in, in rampant sin and, and you're not being corrected or not being exhorted, then you need to live your life in, in closer proximity to believers. And if you are being corrected and exhorted by your parents, leaders, friends even, don't reject that. Don't, don't, get, don't get upset about it. I get our pride gets hurt when someone comes and tell us, tells us something we're doing isn't best or it doesn't seem right or it is downright sinful. But humble yourself and, and take that as correction that they really truly want and desire your good. And so the church is, the, is absolutely essential to the sobriety of the believer. Involvement in the church tampers the temptation to love self, promote selfish desires, and it promotes the love of others. Jesus himself speaks of the love the believer ought to have for the individual members of the body of Christ. He equates acts of love and service to the body as direct act of lo- acts of love and service to him. So in Matthew 25... Christ says, on the last day, this is on the last day, final judgment, Jesus says, then the king will say to those on his right, come to me who are blessed of your father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer, this is Jesus, the king will answer, sit and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. So we ought to love each other. We ought to build each other up. And this is not some flippant, emotional, 
uh, girl, I want to say girly, but uh, school girly love of the world. That is, oh, I just love you when you're doing everything for me. And when, you, when, you're, when you're talking me up and you, you're praising me, I just love you so much. And then when you say something that might be corrective or, or, or uh, advice, then that is, that, that's something I reject. But no, biblical love is truly desiring someone to look like Christ no matter the cost. If you're living in sin and your friends aren't telling you <laughs> and they're not coming to you and correcting you in sin or your parents aren't disciplining you, that's concerning. That's really concerning. So a biblical love is exhorting someone to look like Christ no matter the cost. Okay, and so we're going to go to our last, I'm going to wrap up real quick and do my last point, which again is the encapsulating theme of this entire text. He's saying, how do you fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? You keep sober, I'm sorry, you prepare your minds for action, you keep sober in spirit, and that's how you fix your hope on Christ. And that's my last point, fix your hope on Christ. To rest completely and utterly in the finished work of Christ should be the goal of every believer, that you would walk through life with complete peace and grace that you would understand that Christ has died for you and that you are victorious in him according to his great work and you rest in Christ. And again, our work, our works will be made manifest on the last day. When we see him triumphing in glory, when we see him face to face, this day is our great hope. And we share in this great victory. We are the church victorious if we are in Christ, not on the account of our own work, but on the account of his great work on our behalf. And Peter is writing to a group of beat up, tired, persecuted, uh, hopeless in one sense, group of exiles. And he's saying, keep going. You're almost there. If you look, you can see the rising of the sun. Your king is coming. Stay alert. He's telling them to stay alert, to keep going. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. And I, I close with this. In, in Pilgrim's Progress, which all of you should have read, I'm just going to assume that you've all read it because it's amazing. And if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, that's your homework for today. Um, read it today. <laughs> Don't waste any time. So the character Christian in the beginning chapter is wandering around his village, the city of destruction. And he has a little Bible that he found somewhere. And as he reads it, he's getting progressively more and more convicted. His family, who are unbelievers, they recognize that he's, he, he's distraught, he's, he, he's facing this turmoil, and they try to calm him down. They say, you know, just come into the house, get a good night's rest, you'll forget all about this in the morning, don't worry about it. And this is Christian's response. And so this is John Bunyan writing in view of Christian. He says, so I saw in my dream that the man, Christian, began to run. Now he had not run far from his own door, when his wife and children, perceiving it, began to cry after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and kept running and cried, Life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him, but fled toward the middle of the plains. And Christian, seeing the tug of worldly hindrances and the pleasures of the world, Christian ran as fast as he could towards something greater. He ran as fast as he could towards something of far greater value. Might we run in this way? Plugging our ears, clearing the path, 
walking in accordance with God's word, that we might live holy lives, honorable, honoring to him. And my last exhortation to you is to think about these things, to, to uh, seek understanding. The application of these truths is difficult, but these truths are simple truths. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope on Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we can come together as your church, uh, that we can deepen and grow um, according to it. Uh, Lord, I pray for these young people. I pray, Lord, that you would give them strength and give them understanding as they seek to honor you in all things. And this life is difficult, and they will be faced with trials. But, Lord, I pray you would preserve them. Lord, those who are, who are here that don't know you, Lord, who might be confused or just uninterested, Lord, I pray that you would save them. I pray, pray that you would bring a recognition of sin, bring genuine repentance in their life, that they would, they would see the great value of our Savior and what he did for them on the cross and that they would, they would weep and they would see their sin in light of the glories of Christ and they would come to you. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen.